Welcome to the podcast series from the ESRC National Centre for Research Methods at the University of Southampton. In this podcast, Professor Peter Elias from the University of Warwick and Strategic Advisor for Data Resources to the Economic and Social Research Council talks about data linkage, what it is, how it works and the support available to social scientists who want to use it. Data linkage is a process of bringing together data which sits in different environments, different places. We call them data sets quite often, but they're assemblages of data. Information which might be about our environment, might be about people, organisations. And we want to be able to combine information. So we use something called a link identifier. We look at the property of the records in one of these data sets and we align them with properties in another data set. So a link identifier might be a name and address, for example, and we use that to link information on the same person. Or it may be that we want to link a person to a community, or we might want to link a person to an organisation in which they work, or we might want to link data on organisations to wider information about world trade, for example. It's not all about linking data on people. Could you give us one or two practical examples of where it's really being used to to good effect? There's a very good example of data linkage for data held by different government departments where there were very uh, important and well-guarded firewalls, we call them, between the way in which the data are held by different departments. So the three departments I'm thinking about, the three that got together, Ministry of Justice, Um, Her Majesty's Majesty's Revenue and Customs and Department for Work and Pensions. And they used information on people who had uh, either been incarcerated or had been cautioned for offences, collected over a 13 or 14 year period, and they linked that to the subsequent status of those individuals following either a period of incarceration or a caution for a recordable offence. Looking at their social benefit status, Uh, what kind of benefits did they claim and when, Uh, looking at their employment status and how much did they earn and what kind of occupations did they work. And all of this has helped us to understand that process of reintegration into society of those people who have quite often been shunned or have been stigmatised because they've had a period of incarceration. Now, there have been increasing concerns around the high costs of good quality surveys and also survey fatigue among people leading to lower response rates. I wonder if uh, data linkage can help here, and if so, how? Well, it can help, but it's not a panacea. I think that's what we have to recognise. It can help because it can fill in what we call missing data, people for whom we don't have a complete record. They've participated in a survey, but for whatever reason uh, have not disclosed their earnings. Now, if we have their permission, their consent to go to a tax record, simply because perhaps they couldn't remember at the time of the survey, but they give that consent and we use the tax record to fill in information, which is often then of a higher quality than information that would otherwise have been obtained, if it could have been obtained at all. So there's also areas where the lack of response that we have in surveys, the falling off of response rates, means that we now have to think about alternative approaches to getting the sort of information that that survey might have been determining. That's more difficult because surveys often collect a wide range of types of data which can only be collected by interview, face-to-face, telephone. 
and replacing that with uh, data from other sources is usually very difficult, but there are ways in which we can use some data for very good advantage. Yeah, because a great deal of this information isn't necessarily designed as a research resource, is it? So that, that must cause some problems and challenges. That's true, and understanding what we call the provenance of data, understanding why it was created, how it's been held, how it's been processed, uh, has it been updated, uh, what's, for example, the administrative function uh, through which data have been collected. A good example is that we used to have as our indicator of unemployment the number of people who were claiming unemployment benefit. Now that's become discredited because ways have been sought to remove people from unemployment benefit claims and we now rely much more on a survey-based approach to uh, information about unemployment. So there we've moved away from administrative data to a survey source so it, you know, it swings and roundabouts. Now as with all personal data there are ongoing concerns over security fears about its misuse. What do you think can be done to allay people's fears on this score? I think we have to be very, very careful here because quite often we're using administrative data without the consent of the people concerned. And for that reason, we have to be sure that we have safeguarded their privacy. So with resources like the Administrative Data Research Network, which the ESRC has established, we've gone to great pains to separate out the process of data linkage from the analysis of the resulting linked data. So we use what we call trusted third parties to engage in the linkage. We make sure that data are suitably uh, de-identified before they are linked. Um, we make sure that when data are made available for research, it's in a secure environment. And we ensure that the outputs of the research have been screened to make sure that there is no possible identification of individuals or organisations from the research so conducted. Now you pointed out in your talk today there's simply not an endless pot of money that can fund data and uh, particularly longitudinal data sources for example. Where are things going there would, would you say? That's a very difficult question to answer and we have a, a, a good uh, legacy of longitudinal resources particularly the birth cohort studies. We want to see these continue and quite often the only way in which they can be continued is by going back and contacting the people concerned, often with a face-to-face -face interview. But it's hugely expensive. And we're now running one of the world's largest household panel studies, Understanding Society. We have commenced work on Life Study, a new and bigger birth cohort study than ever before. All of this is costing a lot of money. And we will be required by our funders uh, to look very hard at the way in which we can gain efficiency savings through the use of other sources of information via data linkage. Just finally, what's your message to researchers out there who are interested to work in this, this area, who might be a little bit wary, given all of the challenges? I would say go and look at the resources which have now been put in place, particularly websites like Closer, like the Administrative Data Research Network. There's a lot of really useful information and simply browsing those websites, looking at what's available, what resources are, are available, what help can be given, will, I think, often spark an interest. And I think what's really important is to recognise that there is help here now, whereas before you were on your own. 
And quite often research, if you can't get on, if you're working on a PhD and after a year you've just encountered access problem after access problem, you're likely to give up and do something else, something different. We don't want that. We want people to ensure that good, high quality, valuable research is conducted using these resources, uh, linking to other resources and making the best use of the mix of strategies that we now have in terms of the data available to us. Professor Peter Elias was talking to Christine Garrington at the recent event, Data Linkage, Ethical and Social Concerns, organised by the International Journal of Social Research Methodology and NCRM, and hosted by Warwick Business School.